Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm really fortunate today to be joined by Mike Novotny, who's the founder and CEO of Medrio. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Really excited to have you uh, on the podcast to talk a little bit about clinical trials and health and the optimism we should be having as an industry. But maybe before we get into those details, I'd love it if you could maybe just give us a quick sense of your background, how you got to where you are today, and maybe a little bit about the entrepreneurial journey. Great. Love to do that. Everybody loves talking about themselves. That's so right. I'm in. Uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Silicon Valley, Palo Alto. I literally biked past Steve Jobs' house as a kid going to high school. So that was very much the ethos I was raised in. I, I didn't understand how important it all was at the time, but uh, but that's kind of where I came up. And so it was in software and then eventually ended up doing uh, databases on the web, which was cool in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And stumbled onto doing a project for UCSF, which was prostate cancer database. Hmm. Uh, So it wasn't a plan to get into biotech. It just kind of stumbled into that early in my career. And I was working with uh, Pete Carroll, who's uh, still the head of urology at UCSF and doing a prostate cancer database, 5,000 patients. And uh, it was pretty exciting. I was a young kid doing software, supporting them. And so I got a chance to talk with him and ask him why we're doing this prostate cancer database. And he told me the reason we're doing this very expensive big study was to understand how prostate cancer is treated in the United States. And I was stunned by this because you're the head of urology at a major university and you don't know how prostate cancer is treated. Yeah. Let alone what are the outcomes of the treatment, which is, you know, how is it treated? I mean, he knew what he did. He knew what, you know, anecdotally, but he didn't have systematic answers to even that very fundamental question. Mm -hmm. And that's when I was hooked on the industry because it was just, I saw the problem. I saw the lack of data and lack of information. Mm -hmm. So that was the initial hook. And then eventually I got into starting my own company years later because of Mark Benioff in Salesforce. The tallest building in San Francisco is the Benioff, is Benioff's building, Salesforce. So thank you, Mark, if you're listening. Uh, (laughs) And uh, because I saw what they were doing. So in CRM, uh, in managing customers, they made it really easy to build a database on the web to enter your customer information. Let's say you wanted to add a phone number field to your database, you just go in a few clicks and you do it. Mm-hmm. That seems very obvious today. It was not obvious at the time. Mm. And so the insight for me was, I'm gonna take what Salesforce did with customer relationship management with CRM and do that in clinical trials. Interesting. Because at the time, if you wanted to build a clinical trial database, it required months of programmers and testers and project managers, and you build this database after six months. And you probably got a lot of it wrong because you're a software person, not a life sciences person. Yeah. And so that was an ugly process. And, and, and so the insight was, let's do what Salesforce does. Let's make it super easy to build a clinical trial database online. Mm-hmm. That was the insight for Medrio. That was 15 years ago. And yeah. that insight, amazingly, is still holding true as wow. clinical trials is a slow industry to change. And we've been able to be the fastest and the easiest. And it's been great to be part of disrupting that. And the good news, as we'll talk about, is there's way more to be done yeah. <laughs> in life sciences and that direction. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And I know uh, that was sort of an era where there was a lot of interest in uh, vertical software, right? Obviously, Mm -hmm. Salesforce being a software that's used across many industries, but now thinking about taking that same technology or perspective and applying it to specific verticals. So, you know, in that context, when you think about the next generation of sort of software companies and inspiration for companies like yours, uh, what do you sort of see here in the Bay Area that you think is equally motivating 
for younger entrepreneurs and early folks in their career? Well, there's so much happening. I mean, and don't take it for granted. In most places of the world, it's not true. And in most times, and, and you know, when I grew up here, it was true sort of, yeah. but it was true in a much slower pace than it is now. But there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, the sharing economy stuff, right? Which you think of Uber and these other places that have figured out how to say, there's a bunch of cars sitting around not being used. But if we actually use them, and that's transformed to the place where now millennials that work work for me here, like some of them don't even want a driver's license. <laughs> they don't want a car. Yeah. That's unheard of. When I was 16, you know, my appointment was a week after my birthday to get my driver's license. And I was crushed. I lost an entire week of driving. <laughs> um, but now it's just in a radically different way of thinking about things. You know, AI is something that people see with enormous potential on. Right. Uh, I think I agree with the potential, but I think we're really early days and, and you know, For you sure. have to have a ton of data to make AI useful. And there's an enormous amount of resources going into figuring these things out. And, and as usual with innovation, most of those are going to fail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's general trends like sharing economy, AI, things like that, that in the long run are almost certain to pan out in a big way. Yeah, that's great. And I I could certainly see uh, perhaps the opportunity to take some of those broader trends and hopefully apply them to the life sciences domain, right? Obviously, AI being one of them could be interesting, like sharing economy amongst others. So, you know, with that, one of the things that I'd love to be able to dig into a little bit more is at a higher level, which might be a best place to start is, you know, there's been a lot of talk these days about how the life sciences domain and pharmaceutical and biotech companies have really missed the mark when it comes to serving the needs of patients, whether it be multi-million dollar therapies that very few people can afford or uh, common diseases that are sort of no longer the focus because of financial reasons. What's your perspective on the broader industry today and how should we be viewing the overall domain? Yeah, look, thank you. And I love the, the vision you have for your podcast. Of saying, think, let's think about it from the perspective of 2050. Mm-hmm. Right? Let's not think about the problems of today. Let's look at the long arc and how do we fit into the problems that they fit into the long arc. Absolutely. Uh, so if we step back to that from that perspective, I think we are in the golden age of life sciences. Wow. I think this is an era unprecedented in human history where I, my belief is that we are curing everything you think of as a disease. Everything you think of a disease will not exist in 100 or 200 years. That maybe is the most ancient human dream of all, right? <laughs> to right. live disease-free. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we're doing it. It's not just an aspiration. Like It's happening. We're in the early days of that. So when you step back and look at it from that perspective, it's, it's fantastic what's happening. And, and, I, and I love talking about that issue because I think it's a big deal. And it's very optimistic and it talks about, you know, we're actually having success. The financing of this is harder. And and so maybe we should get into that in our talk too, because I think that's complicated, especially in the U.S. where health insurance is messed up and you happen to get sick. It's the number one reason for bankruptcy. That's horrible if that's your personal experience of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a financing question. That's not a science question. That's not a what's happening in the long arc of humanity question. That's a short-term financing for an individual and that's a big deal. But looked at from the perspective of 2050, uh, it's not a big deal. From 2050 perspective, we're, we're having a lot of success. Yeah. So in the context of some of the diseases you feel we're heading in the right direction around and are on the cusp of eradicating, what are some of them that come top of mind to you right away? My favorite one to talk about is, is one, because most people heard of it, is cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. So cervical cancer is the fourth leading cause of cancer deaths for women globally. 300,000 women a year die of cervical cancer. And so we can throw up our hands and say, my gosh, this is a horrible thing. And when we do, and we try to treat it, but it's just a horrible outcome. But the great news is a few decades ago, we figured out what causes cervical cancer, and it's HPV. And we know how that's transmitted, sexually transmitted. 
And then a decade or two ago, we came up with a vaccine for HPV. And we've been giving people that vaccine for a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. And what is 100% clear is that we give the vaccine and cervical cancer goes away. Mm. And the result is that we have to give it to people who are young enough before they get HPV. But if you look out over a 2050 time horizon, cervical cancer almost certainly will not exist. And so we've knocked out it's going to take us decades to get there, but we have already in place all the technology, all the infrastructure that that fourth leading cause of cancer in women is gone. It's gone. Wow. And that's 300,000 women a year that die, plus hundreds of thousands or more that get sick. Mm-hmm. And that just will not be the experience of people in the future. I have a daughter. She's nine. She's not going to get cervical cancer because we have the technology for that now. And that's happening all over the place. We're just chipping away at diseases and it's just, it's super exciting. I'll give you another one. Leprosy. I just read about this. I didn't know the history of leprosy until just recently. Yeah. Uh, I haven't personally been involved with it. And Medjur has not been involved. But it, this has been a scourge for all of human history. So you, the most ancient texts we have talk about lepers and mm-hmm. avoid them and don't touch them and leper colonies and all these things that we've heard about. And, and leprosy is, is almost gone in mm. the U.S. I mean, not the U.S., in the world. Mm-hmm. So India comprised 50% of, of leprosy cases. If you go back a few decades... They started a major campaign of education and treatment, and we're down to like 98% of leprosy is gone. Wow. And the only remaining question is, can we get that 100%? Yeah. You know, are we going to end up at 99.9% yeah. or are we going to end up at 100%? That's the only question left. Uh, and I believe, of course, that with just enough resources towards it, we can get to 100%. So we can go on and on. And the thing is, what happens is we, we no longer have these diseases and we stop thinking about them. Yep. And we focus on the latest thing and we and we get upset about that, rightly so. But we lose track of the perspective uh, of the long arc. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I think it's really helpful, I think, for the broader audience to have that higher order view of really, you know, taking a step back, we're doing a lot of things right. Obviously, areas to improve, but leprosy, cervical cancer are making huge strides in terms of the the frontiers where you feel like we haven't made much progress yet, any uh, indications or domains that come to mind in that regard? Yeah, CNS for sure. Central nervous system is the one where we keep thinking like maybe we've got Alzheimer's, you know, or mm-hmm. or we're going to get there. And it's just proven to be the hardest. So there's a ton of money's been spent, a ton of hopes raised, and it just hasn't happened. But then, you know, the question is, does that mean it's irresolvable and we should stop? By say we, I'm talking about society. You know, if you're an individual pharma company and you're trying to decide whether to invest, mm-hmm. do your best from your scientific perspective and your financial perspective and, and make your choice. But I'm talking about as a society, you know, should we sort of say, gosh, this is hopeless? And the answer is no, even in CNS, which is the <laughs> hardest, we've made progress. So I have, you know, very personal uh, experience with a family friend who has Huntington's disease, mm-hmm. horrible disease. It's like Alzheimer's when you tend to get it younger, you get wow. it in like your 30s, 20s even. And it just takes away your mind. Our family friend got a later onset, so he's actually made it to his 70s, but he you know, barely knows his own name anymore. Kind of horrible experience. But the great news is that just in the last five years, we've learned much more about how to deliver drugs to the brain. That's a major advance that we need in order to deal with Huntington's and other things. And we've identified the genes of Huntington's. And so people are working on a drug delivery target. And so the likely case is Huntington's, we're going to solve it. And so that's generally what people believe now are in, in the field of Huntington. So it's not done yet, and it might be years or decades away, but probably not, because mm-hmm. we've, we now understand the basic science enough. We're working on the actual treatments. Yeah. So the things take time, but probably Huntington's will be the first major one to go. And many fewer people have Huntington's than, than Alzheimer's and the other diseases, but 
even in CNS, we're picking away at it. It's interesting in that um, what we've seen, at least in, in the contemporary time of the recording of this podcast, is there's been a lot of pharmaceutical companies, at least on the larger size, the enterprise side, that have been spending less time and, and resources in CNS. But yeah. I think what's filled that gap has been a broad slew of young emerging biotechs with really innovative approaches and unencumbered by challenges of the past who are trying to tackle it. So uh, I agree with you. I hope we'll, we, we sort of tackle it soon. But, you know, from a, the perspective of eradication, I could totally appreciate that there are some fairly large, well-known, and now well-understood diseases that we are close to making irrelevant. But what it also does at the same time is it brings to mind the fact that there are other, not necessarily even diseases, but issues and population-level problems that are perhaps growing beyond what traditional disease might normally encompass. So one or two examples might be, say, addiction or diabetes. How do you sort of think about those sort of unintended consequences of our success as a society in the context of broader sort of disease eradication? Yeah, it's a great question. I love it. So the first thing is to set the baseline. So a lot of these diseases come out exactly because of our success. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to about 1870 to today, 150 years, we've added a year of life every four years. Hmm. So think of someone who's 16 years younger than you. Mm -hmm. They're going to live four years longer than you on average. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and that's been a linear progression for 150 years. So a lot of diseases that like Alzheimer's, nobody got them because everybody died <laughs> before they got them. So my dad, for example, when he was born, life expectancy in the United States was in the 40s. Mm. So I've already, I'm 52, I've already outlived my dad's life expectancy. <laughs> wow. Um, and I, you know, I'm healthy and expect to live much longer. So part of it is we're just living longer and then we're getting to other, running into other problems. But some of it, I think the right perspective on this is three steps forward, two steps back. Mm. So let's talk about obesity. In the 60s, you know, Robert Kennedy was touring the country. His political inspiration, whether you believe in his politics or not, what drove him was seeing when he toured poor areas of this country that people didn't have enough food. Think of chicken in every pot in the 30s. He's touring in the, in the 1960s. So when I was born in 1969, people didn't have enough food in this mm -hmm. country. And now that's not a thing. I mean, unless you're homeless so that you can't get access to food, there's plenty of food. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't true then. So we set up a bunch of farming policies to subsidize calories and all these things to get rid of hunger in the United States. And so we've achieved that. Again, other than people that are, that are really struggling, we, we've achieved that. And that's fantastic. That's the three steps forward. Mm -hmm. Two steps back is maybe we overachieved a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> yeah. And we do really dumb things like we subsidize sugar growth because then we're just adding to the obesity problem. But for me, I would obesity is terrible. It kills a lot of people. It's awful. Uh, but it's not as bad as children starving to death. Mm -hmm. And so what we've done is we've gone three steps forward. We kind of over-succeeded. And now we've had this two steps back with obesity. And now we need to tackle obesity. Uh, but for me, I would take having overweight people in this country rather than having children starving. So I think mm -hmm. the progress is actually dramatic. But it doesn't mean that there aren't backslides. Well, you know, I think one of the challenges that results, however, is some of these challenges that come up that are broad in their impact addiction being another example perhaps, is that it puts a pretty measurable cost on the overall healthcare system. And when you think about the pipeline of medicines that need to be developed to help ameliorate those issues, those costs also are now larger than they were, say, 10 or 20 years ago. So how do you kind of think about the aspect of sustainability and cost in this new world where medicines are more expensive to develop? We have larger diseases that 
aren't easily treated pharmaceutically, right? Yeah. Et cetera. Yeah, well, let me tie that to addiction, actually. Please. And, and experience that I personally have through Medry on this. So, it, but let's again take the big long view as you take with your podcast. So, where does addiction opioid crisis come from? It comes from people used to be in a lot of pain. When you go to your doctor, they would treat your, are you alive or not, your lab tests or whatever. They wouldn't treat the patient or ask the patient how they're doing. And in the 1990s, this started becoming a thing that you should ask the patient, how are they doing, get their perspective. And Medra does a lot of this. It's called patient-reported outcomes. We survey patients about in clinical trials saying, how are your side effects and so on. And it turns out that a lot of people were just in chronic pain for their whole life, for decades. They would be in a lot of pain. And that's why when you go to doctors now, they have little smiley faces, you know, like frowny face and a lot of pain all the way up to like smiley face. That's where that comes from because we realized we were just sending people off to go home and suffer. And so we started doing a lot of things to address pain. The problem is that then we started over-prescribing opioids, which then led to the addiction. Mm. So to me, it's another perspective of a three steps forward, two steps back. We've addressed pain management in, in the world in a much more effective way. And it is the worst thing in the world to be in pain all day, every mm. night. For the rest of your life is just awful. Uh, so we, we've done much better with that, but then we've now created more uh, opioid crisis. How does funding on that work is your question, and how does Medra play into that? Well, another way we play into it is actually we sat in a phase one trial. So this is first in human. Yep. Their healthy volunteers were addicts, um, hmm. so they would actually get addicts, ironically in Salt Lake City. Huh. Uh, I thought that was really weird. Yeah, of all places. Of yeah. all places in the country, but it turns out they, they have the Mormon church has set up much more support for homeless and for addicts and so on. So they're not just random people in the street. They actually know who they are. They have places to live and they sort of take care of them. And so they're easier to find people for the phase one trials. Mm. So first in human trials, they have this opioid replacement. And what they're hoping for is something that kills pain without being addicting. Mm-hmm. So you can't abuse it. So I watched these people line up. They, these are drug addicts and they're lined up. And they're going to snort this thing, and it's going to give them a high if they snort it. If they use it properly, like with a pill, then it's not. And so they're looking for abuse. And so they had people actually snorting these lines of these these pharmaceuticals. And the intention was to structure it chemically in such a way that when you snorted it, it turned into glass inside your nose. And it was excruciatingly painful. (laughs) (laughs) And so these people are snorting this stuff. And you watch them like, are they they in pain or not? Um, The idea was to stop the abuse, right? Um, so there's a lot of efforts underway to deal with this two steps backwards of the opioid crisis, but it's a, it's a big deal. We need to address it, and it's not cheap. So the question then becomes two questions. The first is, is it a solvable problem? Mm-hmm. Can we create pain medications that aren't addicting? Mm-hmm. And the second, if it is solvable, how expensive is it? My optimism out of, that, out of this yeah. that, I have bring, that I bring in every day is that these are all solvable problems. These are things we're making so much progress that we can solve these things. The challenge is that they're not cheap at all. They're measured in billions of dollars. Yeah. So if you want opioid replacements, you're talking billions, maybe tens of billions, because a lot of it's going to fail. And so it's an enormous investment, which is hard for private companies to support. It's hard for government just to write unlimited checks. Mm-hmm. So these are these are challenging, but it's challenging from a financial perspective more than a scientific perspective. Like we can get there if we have the political will to support it. I think one of the more recent uh, examples here that sort of touches upon both finances, sustainability, as well as mustering the broader will and focus on a domain that's been historically forgotten is uh, some of the challenges we've had uh, recently with the coronavirus, right? And how COVID-19 was historically part of a broader set of viruses that we're familiar with, but didn't tackle. And now today have a lot of focus, both geopolitically, but also from an industry perspective. How does that, recent experiences we've had with coronavirus, 
fit into that sort of broader cost and tackling scenario that you described? So apologies in advance if my optimism is annoying. Okay, please. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> because I don't know if you're listening to this podcast in a bunker somewhere and yeah, 90% right. of the population has died uh, because this is the early days of, of COVID-19 and we don't know how, you know, is it going to be Spanish flu level mm-hmm. or is it going to peter out in the summer as the flu peters out? There's just unknowns at this point. So I don't know about COVID-19. But what I do know is that COVID-19 is a coronavirus among many that are circulating in the population all the time. There are 200 million people that got the flu this year, tens of thousands of deaths globally, and that happens every year. Mm-hmm. So that's just standard par for the course. Coronaviruses are killing people all the time, all over the world, and we just accept that as a normal part of how we operate. Many of those people are children or elderly with limited immune systems, but some of them are not. Some of them are healthy people in their 20s for whatever reason uh, succumb. So this is just something we accept as normal. What's different about COVID-19 is that it's new and it's scary and it's in China and do we have real data and so there's all these unknowns about it, but the actual death rates is actually very normal. So we don't know whether it's going to get worse or not. To the extent that people die and the tragedy of COVID-19 is, is, and I can't predict for you how bad it's going to be, but I can tell you that I wish that 10 years ago we had taken the resources and put it into coronavirus research. Right. To stop not only COVID-19, but all the other coronaviruses that are killing people. Yeah. And so the, the optimism out of this comes that maybe this is, generates the political will to say we should take yeah. this seriously. And there are people that are coming out with vaccines, including some of Medrio's customers, that have maybe a vaccine already for COVID-19. We don't know. We haven't run the trials. We don't know this story. But that we're talking about in weeks, yeah. right? So if we started 10 years ago with a serious effort... COVID-19, I don't believe would exist, or at least we would be able to immediately vaccine for it. And why not all the coronaviruses? So that's my perspective, is that that's that's a great way we as a society, as a global society, should be spending resources because we can get rid of coronaviruses, we can get rid of everything that's facing us if we have the political will and willing to put the attention on it. Yeah, well, you know, I I think your perspective is certainly spot on, given that at least the focus today helps serve as as a catalyst for us to think about not only coronaviruses, but I'd even classify more broadly infectious diseases as a whole, right? I think, unfortunately, much like CNS, many larger institutions, which have been historically the harbingers of innovation, have evacuated the space of infectious diseases. And hopefully, we can reignite the passion for that domain amongst the broader industrial space. So, you know, from there, you know, you've mentioned a couple times different sort of trials and and work that Midrio is engaged in, in terms of uh, bring some of these interesting therapies to market. Maybe to kick us off uh, on this this part of the discussion, love it if you can just give us a quick overview of what Medrio does. And then also, as we think about the broader drug development pipeline, some of the low-hanging fruit and opportunities you see for us to be able to drive improvement and speed in the drug development process as a whole. Great. Yeah. So Medrio is a software company or called e-clinical company. So we do software for clinical trials. And we're the core system of record for a clinical trial. So if you're collecting lab data, medications data, whatever you're collecting in a clinical trial, you're going to enter it into our system, maybe on a website, maybe through an API. And then people are going to review that data to clean it. So maybe they find that uh, your, your cholesterol value is 2,000 which would mean you're dead. Um, So (laughs) did you really mean 200? Uh, So there's a whole cleaning process. And at the end of that, it's that data submitted to the FDA or other regulatory authorities to say, hey, it looks like we have something that works or or maybe we don't. And so there's a whole bunch of of capabilities around that, randomizing patients to different arms of the trials and so on. But uh, so we're we're the software component behind supporting the scientists and and the operations people that are trying to figure out 
of whether something works or not. And that something could be a, a pharmaceutical, it could be a medical device, it could be a diagnostic test, it could be a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And we do, we do all of that for the different customers that we have. Oh, that's great. And so um, when you think about the trial process itself, obviously there's both multiple different sites and multiple different parties and different systems. And where do you sort of see this aspect of monitoring and uh, MedRio strength really helping to drive efficiency in that process as a whole? So the healthcare system in general, as we all know, and including clinical trials, is, is incredibly inefficient. Yeah. So I, I don't see any reason why we can't take you know, 80, 90% of the costs out of the system. Mm-hmm. And so if we can take out 90% of the costs, we can do 10 times as many trials for the same money we can have 10 times as many vaccines and drugs and everything else. Yeah. And actually probably more than that, because if you took out the cost, then people would invest more. more. In it. Yeah. So but let me give you some examples. So maybe a third of the cost of a clinical trial is monitoring the data and looking at it closely to be sure it's accurate. Because if you have bad data, then it doesn't do any good, right? But a lot of the monitoring costs are just inefficient. So you put someone on a plane, they fly out to a doctor's office, they pull up paper forms, they compare it to an electronic system like Medrio's electronic data capture system, they see if that data is the same or not. That's necessary to be sure you have quality data, but doesn't that sound crazy? <laughs> that's, but that's, the, that's what's done in clinical trials today. And it's just wildly inefficient to have all these people spending their time and energy doing that. So one of those things that Medrio offers is something called eSource or direct data capture, where instead of filling out initially on a piece of paper, and then entering to a system like Medrio, uh, you fill it out on a tablet, and then there is no paper. There's no paper to compare against. There's no issue of is the data correct or not. You have the best data that you have, yep. and that's it. Now, that sounds so blindingly obvious today, <laughs> um, but that's not how it's done. How it's done is paper first. Mm-hmm. And if we did just that, if we just got rid of the, the paper in the system, mm-hmm. maybe that's 20 25% wow. the cost of the trials. That's tens of billions of dollars every year. So there's there's just, that's one example. Another one that's important to me is, is something called virtual trials or decentralized trials. The way trials work today is if you're going to get on a clinical trial, almost always your doctor tells you about it. You come in, you have diabetes or whatever, and they say, hey, I happen to know about this trial and, and you happen to fit for it. Why don't you think about signing up? You say yes or no. But that's a wildly inefficient process. Yeah. Your doctor has to be know about the trial, has to sign you up, has to think of that in the moment to ask you. And there's, I, mean, I get contacted all the time by friends who are saying, hey, Mike, you're in clinical trials. How do I get on a trial? Yeah. Uh, this is a really, really inefficient process to go through the doctors. So decentralized trial says, no, we're going to go straight to the participants. Yeah. So we're going to maybe advertise or we're going to find you on social media or we're going to look in your health record to see that you qualify for this. And we're going to reach out to you and say, are you interested? Mm-hmm. Rather than waiting with a filter of your doctor. Yeah. Now, of course, you're still going to be seen through a doctor in the trial, but you're identifying you whether you want to, you right. know. So it's this weird, it's like hiring someone. You can never find anyone to hire. And when you're looking for a job, you can never find a job. Yeah. It's <laughs> the same problem that we all as individuals can't find clinical trials to be on. But in the pharma companies are can't find enough participants in their trials. Yeah, yeah, it's the yeah. number one problem in clinical trials. Yeah. So by figuring that out and going direct to people and understanding where they stand, mm-hmm. is it a genetic flip that qualifies them for the trial or what is it? And connecting that is an enormous cost saver. And not just cost saver, it actually makes trials possible to do. Mm-hmm. So that's another example of a, just a tremendous amount of inefficiency if we can get over that. And why not? Like the, it's all possible today. Yeah. It's just the execution on it's difficult. Uh, but if we can get that done, then we're going to see costs plummet. We're going to see more medicines available, and and it's just a much better world. As you describe that two-sided problem, right? Patients who are looking to get on trials and trials that are looking to find patients, it almost sounds like the clinical trial equivalent to the problem that like Uber and Lyft and Airbnb solve, right? Yeah. Taxi, I'm looking for a fare. 
I'm a rider looking for a ride, right? Yeah. And so um, as you think about even just with patient selection or clinical trials as a whole, obviously you're sort of in the mix of thinking about AI and machine learning and probably have, if you're like me, have gotten a little bit immune to those phrases, right? To those acronyms. But as a practitioner, as someone who's tip of the spear in terms of innovation in the field, where do you think the one or two areas that AI or ML can have the most interesting impact in clinical trials? The first thing you need to know about AI to answer that question is that you need a lot of data. Mm. But, you know, if you're Google using AI with your, you know, location on your phone, you have billions of people every, I don't know how often they record your location, every few (laughs) seconds times billions of people. Too often, maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe way too often. And so you just have this massive quantities of data that you can apply AI to. So in in life sciences, mostly there's not that much data. In relative, even where, I, where I'd come from previous to life sciences, there's very little data. 5,000 patients in a trial is only 5,000 patients. Even if you have thousands of data points per patient, that's just not much data. Uh, but that's changing. I was talking to a wearables vendor in the space, and they collect a million data points per patient mm. per day. Wow. That's a lot of data. Mm-hmm. Now you have 5,000 patients times a million, you know, a million times however many days of the trial. You mean you're getting to real quantities of data. So there's things like wearables that are that are coming into play, or uh, real life ev- real world evidence is the other big area. Um, so you're tracking whatever you might be tracking about someone on, in the real world, actively monitoring them, and then you have lots of data you can apply AI. Until then, it just this isn't going to happen. So that's that's where that's where the possibility is. But the good news is we've all seen all over the place devices. Everyone in your refrigerator, there's a device. Right? <laughs> so everywhere there's a device collecting data, and there's a lot of people spending a lot of energy trying to solve that problem. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the the interesting thing I see about digital health is biology is highly stochastic. If you were to go measure someone's heart rate now versus five minutes from now versus an hour from now it could be very different. And I feel like the continuity of data that you're sort of highlighting in terms of wearables perhaps allows you to mitigate some of that stochasticity and at least be able to come back to sort of a common baseline that can give you perhaps better readouts as opposed to just very brief snapshots in time. Yep. Right? Interesting perspective, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as you think about then uh, trials as a whole and some of the opportunities for inefficiency, beyond sort of the opportunity that technology provides, uh, where else do you sort of see some of the low-hanging fruit or the opportunities to improve how we prosecute, clinical development, et cetera? Yeah, let me answer that by starting with the, the optimism again, that the science is hard in many cases, mm-hmm. but it's not impossible. The process is hard, but it's not impossible. Maybe it's expensive, but it's not impossible. So what that really means is it comes back to a political will on our parts. Do we want to do it bad enough? Mm-hmm. And I think people are dying, right? I think we should want to do it bad enough. And so we just got to get there. So here's some examples. So the regulatory environment, the FDAs and global regulatory agencies that monitor clinical trials need to do that to be very sure that things are done properly. But there's a huge amount of inefficiencies in that. COVID-19 is an example of where they loosened it. So the FDA came out with a formal policy that said, you can start using this in patients to do diagnostics. So not treating, but doing diagnostics if they have COVID-19 or not, before you submit the trial data to us. And that's an emergency power that they have to move more quickly. So there's lots of examples where we're we're slowing ourselves down intentionally for safety reasons, which is good, but where's the balance there? And the the balance is often too conservative in my view. HIV research is a perfect example of this. So AIDS crisis is, is, is raging in the 90s. And people are kind of doing their research in the normal way. And there's a lot of activism that said, you know, drugs and patients now. And yeah, you might kill the patient, but they're going to die anyway. 
And the same thing is true with cancer and other things. So when we have the political will to move quickly and be willing to take some risks, which and the risks are serious, not just something might happen, people will die. Like this is serious stuff we're talking about. So we're willing to take some risks, have some things go badly. Yeah. But the net balance of that is now HIV is a manageable disease for the most part. That's worth it to me, right? It's worth it to me to take those risks and be bold on that. So when we have the willingness to spend the money, to take some risks in order to look at the bigger picture, that's, I think, great. But what happens in the regulatory environment is it gets conservative because if one patient dies, then someone makes a stink mm -hmm. and someone loses their job or a politician looks bad or whatever. So it, it gets painted in this very negative light. But we got to be willing to be bold and take those risks in order right. to get the gains. The gains are enormous. And there's some concrete examples of this. And some of this is bipartisan, by the way. It's not all you know, just against each other. It's actually very bipartisan. You look at NIH funding. NIH right. funding has gone up tremendously over decades. Mm -hmm. And that's been bipartisan. So both sides of the aisle see the value of that. And that's great. I mean, we do tens of billions of dollars a year. What is the budget now? Do you know? It's 30 uh, billion, it something like that. Right, yeah. Something like 30 billion a year. That's a lot of money. And it's had wonderful success. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people criticize it. We spend this, this government money and then private companies take it and go make money off of that. But I'm like, okay, wonderful. <laughs> They're curing diseases. That's yeah. the point. But what if we doubled it? What if we tripled it? What if we quadrupled it? Uh, that would be a ton of money. But on the other hand, we spend $100 billion drop in the hat. You know, why not spend $100 billion eradicating disease? Yeah. I don't see and, – and that's just – that's a simple one, just more money. There are more subtle ones around regulation. But there's a lot that we can do. We're not powerless. It's just a question of do we have political will. Well, you know, I think it's, a, it's an interesting time where we're starting to see, at least in the broader ecosystem, uh, how important tech has become, right, to individual industries and disrupting them. And I think that hopefully has now beget, especially from a political perspective – the focus on using technology, long-term investment, right? Yep. To solve some of these really big canonical challenges, uh, as we've talked about earlier. So, you know, with that, Mike, I'd love to thank you for sort of being on the podcast today and uh, sharing with us a little bit about MedRio, your optimism, most importantly, for <laughs> the future of humanity. And, you know, would love to connect again, maybe in the next couple months or a year or so, to see whether some of these predictions you've made come to fruition. I look forward to it. And, and thank you for taking the long view in the industry and helping <laughs> us see it, because I think ultimately you're affecting the political will for us to do the right thing and eradicate disease. And it's an exciting time. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.